0: Well, believe it or not, we are in week 29 on a series on the Gospel of Luke, and this week we come to a section of chapter 7 and an interaction between Jesus, a Pharisee by the name of Simon, and what is described as a woman of the city, a sinner. Again, we're in chapter 7, we're going to pick it up with verse 36. Let me read for us. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Well, this is... The word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go to him again in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful picture of grace and mercy. In fact, it is no mere picture. This actually happened. And Lord, we thank you that you call us to judge rightly, to see what our sin is, and in turn to find life in your Son. We pray that this time would be a good meditation on that, a good meditation on how good and gracious and kind you are, but also how much we need you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, and the power of the Spirit. Amen. Well, if you remember from previous weeks, John the Baptist from prison had sent two disciples, really. They function as two witnesses for John, asking Jesus if he was the one to come or should they look for another one. And despite having proclaimed Jesus as the Messiah, the Holy One of Israel, and baptized Him, complete with witnessing the Holy Spirit descend upon Jesus, still John had his doubts. And because I've talked about this a lot over the last weeks, I won't belabor the point, but most likely it was because uh, while Jesus was fulfilling the promises of God's mercy, He didn't appear to be fulfilling the promises of God's justice. Well, Jesus tells the two witnesses to observe all the things he'd been doing. And in Jesus' own words, he says, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. So Jesus invites these two witnesses to take in all that they have seen and, and heard and make an evaluation on whether Jesus is the one to come or not. That is, whether he is the Messiah or not. He then tacks on, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now, when we are offended, it is typically because someone has not met our expectations for how we think uh, someone should behave because we think they have disregarded the law or rules of etiquette or contractual arrangements or whatever, right? So as I've said in the past, I am most easily offended when rules of etiquette in public settings, like say a movie theater, or the treatment of servers in a restaurant are not met or when people have poor table manners or what have you. And I notice these things instantly. But there's also the possibility that we might be offended because someone calls us into question. As in, I think you are wrong. Or I think your way of life or what you think or your politics is a problem. And I absolutely disagree with you on that point. Now, only the very wise and the very mature can hear personal criticism of this nature, no matter how softly or objectively it's worded, without immediately being offended. I mean, everyone, everyone with no exception has a self-righteousness problem. Uh, So to at least some degree, uh, everyone struggles with this. And obviously some more than others, and some more depending on what the issue is, but still, all of us struggle with this. Now the temptation for Jesus' Jewish audience was not only to be offended by Him because He did not meet with their cultural expectations for how the Messiah should be and do, many of which of those expectations were shaped by the Bible, but perhaps more so because He called them out. I mean, after all, if Jesus was offering the forgiveness of sins, that meant that God's people were in need of the forgiveness because they had broken the covenant like their forefathers had done. This is why every time we do a confession of sin, in some sense, it should be offensive to us because God Himself is calling out our lives. Now, to a scribe or a Pharisee, to say something of this nature, that the people have broken the covenant, To say that to say a tax collector or a prostitute, that's good, that's that's par for the course. Those kind of people needed to hear about their sin, but to say such, such a thing to a scribe or a Pharisee, well, that was deeply offensive. And as Jesus puts it to the crowds, well, if they accepted John as a true prophet, Then by implication, John's word about their need for repentance and preparation for Jesus the Messiah, well, that word is true too. And in turn, turn, Jesus is that Messiah. But the self-appointed shepherds of Israel, they weren't having this at all. As Jesus describes them, it, it doesn't matter what kind of song was played for them. They were not responding to the music. So John was sent by God to play a kind of dirge a song of repentance. They didn't think they needed it. They didn't think they needed to repent. And so uh, they, they described him as a crazy person and really possessed by a demon. Jesus was sent by God singing a joyful song of jubilee and God's kindness, offering God's mercy and grace. They didn't need that either. And they called him a glutton and a drunk. So in other words, neither John nor Jesus met their expectations for what counts as not only a true prophet, but the Messiah himself. And as as Luke puts it, they rejected God's purpose for themselves. So they rejected John's baptism of repentance because it was offensive to them. They did not need to repent in their own view. They had not broken the covenant. Yet as Jesus says... Wisdom is justified by all her children. Now, what does that mean? Well, if you consider Proverbs 1.7, you start to get a flavor of this. It says, fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So the children of wisdom are the ones who fear the Lord and in turn listen to His voice learn to walk in His ways, and learn to make right judgments in light of Him. That means wisdom is a life of repentance and dependence on God, a life of constantly turning back to God and depending on Him for everything. And at this crucial junction of history, the Word of God, the one through whom and for whom all things were made, The very wisdom of God had taken on flesh, and those who listen to Him as God the Father commands at Jesus' baptism, those will have life and in turn will be children of wisdom. But as Proverbs 1.7 makes clear, fools despise wisdom and instruction. That is, fools refuse to listen to God's Word. So the question is, okay... Who are the children of wisdom? Who are the righteous? This leads us to our passage because Luke is going to show us exactly what it looks like. So we read in verse 36 that one of the Pharisees in the crowd, Simon, invites Jesus into his home to eat. And they recline at table. So to recline at table at this point in history was uh, to sit comfortably at a low table. All of us are used to high tables. This would have been a table, I don't know, a foot maybe a foot and a half off the ground with, with pillows. So you were basically propped up on one arm, almost like how you might recline on a picnic blanket, out in the field at a picnic, something like that. And so the language indicates that this was most likely a Sabbath meal and that it had kind of a festive uh, feel to it, not unlike the meal thrown for Jesus by Matthew, the tax collector earlier in Luke. So, so Simon the Pharisee was on some level taking Jesus seriously. I mean, after all, he did invite him to his home on a Sabbath, most likely to hear more from Jesus and to be able to question him more than likely more personally. And he does address Jesus with the respectful teacher. I don't think he was being sarcastic. I think he was being somewhat respectful of him, even as he, he holds back from calling him a prophet. And the reason for this is that, you know, unlike the crowds, he was unconvinced about Jesus, and he was, in a certain sense, standing in judgment over him. And we get that by how he interprets Jesus' actions with a woman and comes to the very quick conclusion, this is no prophet. This is no prophet. Even so, it's interesting that Jesus accepts the invitation. Thus far in the gospel, he accepts Matthew's invitation to the Sabbath meal, and Matthew would have been notorious. And at the opposite end of the moral spectrum, He's accepted Simon's invitation to a Sabbath meal. And this plays against some of our, our own expectations, too. I mean, Jesus is just as interested in the worst of the worst as he is the elites. And sometimes in our American context, some Christians assume that God would never, would never pursue upper-class, rich elites, ever, ever. In fact, one of my, my professors back at seminary, so this is going back to 1998, I'm sure I've told this story, but on his office door, he had an advertisement for a mall in St. Louis called uh, Plaza Frontenac. If that sounds rich, it's because it is. And he put on that, that advertisement, Lost People Group. And I thought, he's exactly right. Even as others, perhaps among Christians, assume that God would never, 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 pursue a woke political activist. Ever. God hates those people, right? No, no, no. Jesus is a friend of sinners, no matter the sin, and he longs for all to find life in him. And at some point during this meal, though, Luke tells us that a woman of the city who was a sinner, who when she learned that Jesus was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment." Now, if this sounds really jarring and strange and uncomfortable, yeah, it it was. Probably way more so for those who actually watched this whole thing go down. And it's hard to know exactly what the woman's sin was. I mean, she might have been a prostitute like Mary Magdalene, or she could have been the wife of a man of dishonorable reputation, like, say, Matthew, the tax collector, or she was in serious debt herself or had committed adultery. Could be any number of things. And Luke doesn't tell us what her sin was. And really, in a certain sense, it doesn't matter what it was. But whatever it was luke's description of her is of the sort of woman who would not have been welcome among the pharisees at table and certainly not in their homes she would have been considered unclean by them that's not a distinction made by the torah that was a distinction made by their own traditions so the woman never speaks a word and we don't even learn her name in this passage But her actions reveal her as a woman of wisdom. She brings a gift of exceeding value, this alabaster flask of ointment that was very aromatic. So This is actually a very expensive ointment. And it was often used for the consecration of priests and for the burying of the dead, like what we see with Nicodemus, what he does Uh, for Jesus at his burial in in the Gospel of John. And she bows down to Jesus, and he would have been shoeless at this point. And before anointing his feet with the ointment, she washes his feet with her tears, which indicates that this was not kind of a simpering sort of weeping, but a a full-blown, wet-faced, messy weeping. And she dried his feet with her hair. Now, as Jesus will explain in a bit, she has shown far greater hospitality to Jesus than Simon, because she not only washed his feet, she did so with her own tears and hair. And it makes me wonder, and again, this is speculation on my part, and I admit this up front, but that in her, her clear worship and devotion to Jesus, because that's what this is. I mean, she's kissing his feet, and I'll explain that in a minute. She gladly surrenders whatever glory she might have. And in this case, it's her hair. And as Paul says, the glory of a woman is symbolized in her hair. That's 1 Corinthians 11. This is the distinction between men and women. Men don't have glory in their hair. But women do. Women do. So this is a he must increase and i must decrease i give whatever glory i might have to you sort of moment and she in turn gives her treasure to her lord with the ointment so the kiss that is described uh, is of course intimate because all kisses are but it's not romantic it's in the same vein as how the father embraces and kisses his prodigal son in Luke 15, that is its communion, its restoration, is what's in view, or how the elders of the church kissed Paul as he left Ephesus in Acts chapter 20. So it is, as Paul describes, a holy kiss, a kiss of worshipful devotion. It is blessing of God with our lips. We could do that both clearly through what we say, but also here, by the actual action of devotion to God by kissing Him. And I think what is in view here is in, in line with what you read in Psalm 2, which is a messianic psalm about God's anointed one, and to be a Messiah or a Christ is to be anointed, where it says, Kiss the Son, that is God's anointed one, lest he be angry. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. So this woman clearly takes refuge in God's anointed, actually anointing him herself with anointment used for the consecration of priests and the burial of the dead. But you've got to ask the question, what brought this on? What caused her to do such a bold, potentially embarrassing action? Well, it's apparent from the parable that Jesus tells to the Pharisees that this woman's Uh, her actions are not coming out of left field, but rather are in response to Jesus' previous preaching. So she has heard the proclamation of God's jubilee in Jesus, and like the paralytic or the man with the withered hand, she has believed his promise of life and the forgiveness of sins, and she has repented. So she listened to Jesus' word. She saw what he had done, and like how Jesus invited John's disciples to make an evaluation, she made an evaluation, and she turned to Jesus in repentance. And despite whatever her life had been, and clearly she was in some way notorious, like Matthew the tax collector was notorious, when she heard that Jesus was in this place, like the Roman centurion who heard Jesus was near and he immediately acted on it, She took what was probably one of her most valuable possessions, if not her most valuable possession, and she brought it to Jesus in weeping and gratitude, and she worshiped him. This is what the fear of the Lord looks like. This is the beginning of wisdom. And again, this was crazy, right? This was a crazy, uncomfortable moment for everyone witnessing this. That is, except for Jesus. Jesus didn't move to stop her. He doesn't look uncomfortable in the slightest. He doesn't say, no, 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 this is too much. You don't need to do this. No, he accepts the outpouring of worship and affection because it was right for this woman to do this. You see, the proper response to God's mercy and kindness is always the response of gratitude and worship and love. This is what, again, wisdom looks like. So the Pharisee, however, he's offended by this moment, and in more ways than one. In verse 39, Luke tells us that watching this happen, the Pharisee says to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. That is, in the Pharisee's mind, never you mind the sorts of things that Elijah and Elisha did, and never you mind that previous to this, Jesus has touched lepers, which should have made him unclean, but it did not. This is not proper behavior for a prophet, not at all. Righteous people don't mingle with notorious people, let alone no prophet would ever endure a woman like this, probably a woman at all, to touch him. But the Holy One of Israel is not repelled by this woman. He is not put off by her sin. No, like the Levitical sacrificial system, come as a man. This is exactly the sort of person he has come for. He wants to forgive her. He invites her to touch him. The Pharisee, like the nations of Psalm 2, they reject God's anointed. And over the course of Jesus' ministry, the Pharisees as a group will become more and more like Psalm 2. Like the other so-called shepherds of Israel, they will rage against God's anointed one and will refuse to be under his yoke of leadership. So much as Jonah was offended by God's kindness to Nineveh. Just go read Jonah four. I knew you were a God of steadfast, loving and kindness and graciousness. What an insult, right? So the Pharisee is offended by Jesus's kindness to this woman. And never you mind that the entire trajectory of the Old Testament is about God's kindness and offer of life to sinful, wicked people. That's not the end of Jesus' offensiveness here. In response, Jesus says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon says, say it, teacher. Now this is one of those, you gotta watch out sort of moments, right? Watch out and pay attention. Because Jesus is basically asking, Simon, do you have ears to hear? Are you able to make a right judgment? Let's see if you are. So Jesus then says a certain money lender has two debtors, one who owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? So a little bit of context. If a denarii was a day's wage for a day laborer, that's what most scholars think, One man owed 500 days wages and another 50 days. So for a day laborer, either amount is daunting, right? Nearly two months wages versus over a year's worth of wages. And owing really either amount of money could land someone in debtor's prison indefinitely. And once you were in prison, you didn't come out until the debt was paid. That's how that worked. Even as, as we look at this, clearly one man's debt was more... Or at least more serious appearing than the other. So Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said, You have judged rightly. So Simon understands the parable correctly. Will he correctly judge what comes next? Jesus then turns to the woman who is presumably still at his feet and compares her to Simon, his host. Simon did not offer to wash Jesus' feet, as a servant of the true God should do. But this woman not only washed his feet, she did it at great cost with great humility. Simon did not kiss the son, lest he be angry. But this woman has not ceased to worship him and find refuge in him. Simon did not anoint Jesus' head, recognizing Jesus to be the Messiah, the anointed one. But this woman rightly recognized Jesus and anointed his feet. He then says, therefore I tell you, always watch out when he says this. right? This is his authoritative word declaring the purposes of God to Simon. He says, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. So does Simon get it? Like this woman, Jesus is saying Simon is in debt to God for his sin too. And he, too, needs to turn to Jesus to find life. Jesus then pronounces to the woman, Your sins are forgiven. And this, of course, causes a stir at table. And it's not the first time in Luke where this has happened, where people were offended by Jesus saying this, because Jesus is doing something only God himself can do. Only God, as they thought, through the Levitical system, can forgive a sin and make that sacrifice efficacious. Now, as an aside, this is the point where it's easy to get tripped up on Jesus' language because it sounds here at the end as though uh, that because she loved Jesus in this tremendous act of faith and worship, that in response, Jesus, blown away by this, says, oh, well, okay, I love you too. I will forgive you as well. As in, those who love God, God will in turn love, as if God waits on us to act before he will act. No. That's not right. As John in his first letter makes clear, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation, that is, the sacrifice for our sins, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And as Paul says, He loved us even when we were dead in our sins and then with our minds darkened and our hearts set against Him, and He sought us out first. So if you look at the movement of the whole narrative, it's clear. That this woman had heard Jesus at some point before this. Jesus acted first and had responded. She had responded to his preaching and was, in turn, motivated. I mean, really almost compelled by her newfound faith to worship him. She loved Jesus because Jesus had first loved her. That is incredibly important. That is the entire movement of Scripture, god seeks us out we don't seek him out he seeks us out we respond to his seeking and the movement of the parable itself is of a debtor being forgiven a debt he could not pay in response loving the one who set him free so the woman's faith and outpouring of love and gratitude for jesus are all in response to his preaching of forgiveness so even as simon rightly understood Jesus' parable, Simon is offended by Jesus' suggestion that Simon might be in debtor's prison alongside this woman, too. So who in our passage is a child of wisdom? Who is actually righteous? Now, it is surprisingly easy for us to make the sort of assumptions that Simon the Pharisee took for granted as just really the way things are. You know, as Paul teaches, all sin is worthy of death and all have fallen short of the glory of God. After all, in the parable, there are two people in debtor's prison and they cannot get out on their own. But even so, some sins carry social consequences that are far worse than others. So if we take Jesus seriously in the Sermon on the Mount, for example, if we hate another person, even if we never express it out loud and it remains hidden in our mind or so we think, It's no different than murder. As Jesus teaches, both the hatred and the murder are outworkings of the same kind of sinful heart set against God. So just as adultery is the end result of a process that began with lust, so murder is the end result that began with thoughts of hatred. And no matter where you are in that chain, in that process, the proper and just response to such a sinful disposition is debtor's prison. It's death and hell. Even so, it's far easier to bear the consequences of a hidden hatred because nobody, nobody really sees it, though God clearly does, than it is the consequences of having murdered someone. And we all know it. We all know it. It's why we take gossip, which is an outworking of hatred in a form of murder, It's why we take it so lightly. In fact, in a lot of ways, we actually... Enjoy it. But we would be shocked if someone in this church committed murder this week. I just can't imagine. can't imagine ever doing such a thing. So better to be a gossiper than a murderer. And we don't question whether a gossiper rightly can belong in God's kingdom and church because it's not that great of a sin in our minds, even as we would have serious questions about a murderer. And the problem, as Simon demonstrates it, is that we compare ourselves against other people. And we find ourselves to be not nearly so bad as someone else. And even if you have a low view of yourself, it's easy to point out the sin of someone and, and use them to make us feel better about how we, we are. In fact, it's very easy to do this. And no doubt Simon would admit to being a sinner in, in some measure, but not like this woman not like this woman. And what he found offensive about Jesus was, of course, that Jesus not only interacted with this woman, allowing her not just at table, but to touch him in worshipful ways and in turn proclaimed her as forgiven, but that Jesus would go so far as to put Simon in the same boat with her. That's a step too far. That's a step too far. So while all of us perhaps find it easy to confess that Jesus is the Messiah, and here we are, We're, we're worshiping him. Like Simon, we are most offended by Jesus because if we listen to his word, he will call us out. And in some measure, all of us believe that we aren't nearly so bad as the other guy. After all, is gossip really as bad as murder? Really? Well, if you take... Proverbs 6 seriously God does say it's an abomination to him you know something he absolutely hates You can't make those kinds of distinctions even when the consequences are serious And what I've come to believe is that the growth into maturity is the ability not to be more and more righteous it's the ability to see our sin more clearly and be less offended when that sin is called out It is way harder It's way harder. Consider what Proverbs teaches. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be still wiser. Why? Because you could change him. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. A wise son hears his father's instruction, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. A rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding, a word that you're not right, than a hundred blows into a fool and if you're anything like me you are a mixed bag on this that is you are struggling with immaturity so while sometimes I can be criticized and handle it well you know taking what is said to heart without being initially offended there are plenty of times uh, when I have very thin skin and I'm easily offended especially by those who know me the best and love me the most so it's far easier to hear someone, for example, like say me, uh, talking from a pulpit as a generality that hits at something wrong in your life. That is, I'm not calling you out personally from uh, the pulpit, and I promise I never craft sermons with anyone in particular in mind. In fact, if anything, I usually think of my own sin if I'm going to address it. It's easier to hear that than it is to hear the same truth, but perhaps in a more particular or personalized or pointed way expressed to you by your spouse or your parent or a close friend. And those kinds of statements, let's just admit it, they sting far more. They hit far closer to home. They are far harder to deny. And in turn, we are far more easily offended by them. I know because my skin can be awfully thin when it comes to those I love. But come back to Luke here and the question, who are the righteous in our passage? Is it those who appear to have their lives together or those who can listen to a rebuke and turn to God in gratitude? Who was the child of wisdom? The one who listened to the word of God in turn or the one who refused to listen? So those who have ears to hear, let them hear. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you are the kind of God who loves and is so gracious in the sense that you will speak the truth to us. And as we sometimes say here, you gladly take us where we are. You love us right where you begin with us, but you are so good that you don't leave us there. You don't leave us as babies and infants and toddlers. You grow us into maturity, sometimes with us kicking and screaming along the way, but still you are good enough to do it. We thank you, O Father, for being the best kind of parent there is. We thank you for giving us life in your son, that great word who teaches us so acutely and so patiently. And we thank you that you've endowed us with your spirit that moves in our hearts and our minds the very depths of our soul to turn us towards the ways you would have us to live. I pray that we would not be a thick-necked people, that we would in turn learn to be less offended, to grow in instruction, to grow in learning to hear a good word from you through your people. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.